women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about and with the change-making women of Princeton University. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna of the class of 1983, and I can't imagine a better place to start this conversation than with you, Nancy. My guest today is Nancy Weiss-Malkiel, uh, who has so many credentials, I don't know where to start. <laughs> Nancy was the longest-serving dean of the college at Princeton. She's an emeritus professor of history of the 20th century in America, I believe. Is that correct? That's right. And uh, she is the author of a uh, seminal book called Keep the Damn Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation, which we'll get to in a minute. But very, very interestingly for an historian, Nancy is also part of the story that she was writing. Um, she was here in 1969 when it all began. So, Nancy, over to you. Could you set the stage for us for 1969 in Princeton and the nation? Well, this is, of course, uh, a time of uh, enormous uh, tumult in the United States with anti-war protests um, involving uh, the Vietnam War, with the emergence of the women's movement, with the uh, late stages of the student movement and its impact on colleges and universities, and of course the civil rights movement and uh, the turn from um, uh, movements for uh, integration and changing the law to cries for black power, racial violence. So it was a, a pretty uh, tumultuous time uh, in the United States. So, and here you were. Can you position yourself here in Princeton? You were 20, what? 25. Mm -hmm. uh, I arrived uh, in the summer of 1969 as a new assistant professor of uh, history, one of three women in the professorial ranks in the university. I'm not sure I knew coming in how few of us there were. I certainly knew that I was the first woman in the history department. When I was interviewed the fall before Lawrence Stone, then the chair of the history department, a pretty formidable and distinguished historian, uh, said, um, it's not that we have a policy against hiring women. It's that no one has ever suggested it before. <laughs> um, so uh, there we were, three women uh, in the professorial ranks, Suzanne Keller in sociology, who had been tenured the year before, Karen Brazell in East Asian studies, a new assistant professor, and me in history. And then there were all those 170 new women undergraduates. Let me, let me stop there and, and, and ask first, what was that a comfortable or an uncomfortable position to be in, one of only three women at the university? H how did that affect you, both personally and, and professionally? Well, for me, it was actually surprisingly comfortable. I was probably too naive to realize uh, what was uh, going on. Um, but I, I had never had the experience of... Um, having a job. Uh, I had never uh, had the, well, I had had the experience of being one of very few women. Uh, there certainly weren't very many women graduate students at Harvard, and there were no women faculty at Harvard. So I knew a little bit about being the only woman in 
uh, the room. Uh, but for me, it was a constant process of uh, discovery. My colleagues in the history department were uh, surprisingly welcoming. They wanted uh, to, me to uh, come to their homes for dinner. They invited me out for lunch. They wanted to know what this curiosity in their midst uh, was all about. Um, I didn't know any better. I thought they meant to be friends, and so I would invite them and their wives back for dinner parties at my apartment. So for me, that was a uh, seemed to be a perfectly uh, comfortable uh, sort of uh, experience. I would walk into university faculty meetings. I had learned as a student at Smith that uh, taking an interest in the way an institution functioned was part and parcel of being part of that institution. So I did go to faculty meetings, and the president knew who I was, the provost, the dean of the faculty. That doesn't happen to new um, male assistant uh, professors, didn't in that era, and doesn't happen to new assistant professors. So in that uh, sense, of course, being today. a woman was almost an advantage, or it had at a least absolutely. some... Absolutely. And mm -hmm. we were all asked, the three of us, to participate in all manner of committees, to give talks, to uh, alumni, to uh, do anything and everything. It was because they wanted one of us, and one could have reacted to that saying, I'm not uh, interested in that it's tokenism. My reaction was, okay, I'll get to experience parts of the university sooner than I would otherwise. If there are things I'm asked to do that I like, I'll do them again. And if I don't like them, I won't uh, do them uh, again. But that meant a much greater visibility for me than for ordinary uh, new assistant professors. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and, and then, coincidental in a sense to your own arrival in 69, presumably, although of course the tides of history were you know, all going in the same direction, but coincidentally, as you mentioned a minute ago, suddenly there's 170 young 18-year-olds, presumably approximately 18-year-olds on campus. Well, 100 of them are 18-year-olds, and the other 70 are uh, sophomores, juniors, and uh, seniors. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. But what was it like then when this unfolded? I mean, from your perspective as a faculty member, as a woman faculty member, um, how did the university change? Well, of course, I had not known the university before. So I had uh, no point of reference. And most of my own classes were uh, almost all, if not all, male, because there weren't very many women in that first year uh, to go um, around. And for male students, it was uh, a, an unusual experience to have a woman teacher. Some of my students told me that they hadn't had a woman teacher since sixth uh, grade. When I walked into my first precepts, the young men, and they were all young men, stood up, pulled out my chair to seat me. That didn't continue for very long. I had a, um, a junior advisee who brought an apple to my <laughs> office hours. My course evaluations would say things like, um, there is less idle joking in your classes, or you teach from a feminine point of view. I asked some of the students I knew pretty well by the end of the year what that meant, and they had no idea how to uh, explain it. I was invited uh, uh, by uh, an alumnus I knew from home in Baltimore uh, to come to uh, Cannon uh, Club of all places um, for 
um, uh, Emil when he was in town, and he told me that uh, Cannon was a place where there was more beer on the floor than um, in the uh, beer cups. Some of my students would invite me to lunch at their eating clubs, and it was well into the meal before the young men around the table realized that they were talking to a faculty member. <laughs> so there, there was a lot of humor, a lot of uh, unexpected experience, a lot of, uh, a lot of awkwardness um, in what about the pressure? beginning. Excuse me. What, what about pressure? Did you feel a need to either, and I've heard this a lot from other women from the class of 73, either symbolically represent all women through your work, or uh, maybe a, a, a more relevant question is, did you feel the need to mentor or to help some of the young women adjust who were coming in uh, in 1969, 70, and, uh, and 71? I should just say that many of the class of 73 did transfer in after 1969. So um, I'm curious what personal role you took in their experience. Well, first of all, I did not feel the need to represent uh, all women. Maybe I was naive enough not to realize that there was something going on where I might have done that, but I didn't. Um, I certainly got to know uh, women students in my classes as my independent work advisees, and I was very glad uh, to come to know them well outside as well as inside uh, the classroom. I remember lots of uh, opportunities. For instance, Halsey Bowen, assistant dean of students, would invite faculty and students and administrators and women in the community over to her house on Fitz Randolph Road for conversation. You know, it might be breakfast, it might be lunch, it might just be conversation about things relating uh, to the experience of women. So I got to know women students in lots of settings, and I got to hear them uh, describe their experience. One of the things I remember vividly is the women students complaining that they were sitting home on Saturday night in their dorm rooms because all of these young men who outnumbered them so dramatically assumed they already had dates and didn't want to ask them out because they didn't want to get shot down. So um, we talked a lot about what it was like to be pioneers, what it was like uh, to be uh, the first uh, women students uh, here. And I was very glad uh, to be able to get to know some of those uh, students well and uh, to stay in touch with them up until the present day. So it's fascinating looking back through your book, you document this, but through other chronicles, the national media took a, took a, a strong interest in the co-education of Princeton and other universities like it. I wonder why it was a national topic. I mean, with so much else going on in the United States at the time, big, big things, why did it matter that a few elite institutions, and I want to talk about that a bit, we are talking about elite institutions here for the most part. Why did it matter that they decided to admit women at that moment? Well, look, places like Princeton and Yale were centuries old, um, pinnacles of uh, educational opportunity and achievement. Their graduates um, had uh, assumed leadership roles in the professions, in uh, business, in their communities. It was um, a sign of prestige and accomplishment to have gone to a school like Princeton or Yale. Um, I'm leaving 
Harvard out, you could say Harvard too. Harvard is a special case in terms of co-education. So, um, so when these very traditional, very conservative, very elite, very prestigious institutions decide for the first time after hundreds of years that they're going to make opportunities available to women, it's a it's a big splashy story. Um, almost as much for the curiosity of it and the fun of it from the point of view of the media as for it being of major uh, important uh, import. But that said, I mean, it's kind of interesting to me. Uh, you can almost think of it as injecting a little bit of rocket fuel into the women's movement at that moment, right? So many of the women who came in the early years of Princeton really did take uh, major leadership roles eventually in their career. I can think of a few Supreme Court justices, for example. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Did, 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 did Princeton, did the universities that admitted women at that moment have an outsized impact on the trajectory of, uh, of American history? And I ask this almost as a professional historian as much as a, a witness to the events. Well, people who have gone to schools like this uh, uh, normally take in outsized leadership roles in this uh, society. If you look at you know, who sits on the Supreme Court, if you look at the CEOs of major corporations, if you look at the partners of leading uh, law firms, they tend to be uh, peopled by graduates of places uh, like this. Um, it was certainly not clear in 1969, what role women graduates of places like this would play in the world uh, later. Not at all clear. I am I, I, now going to turn back to your book, which is a, an exhaustive history and, and, and based on archives of Princeton and other similar universities. The, the, the impact was, was strong, and we'll talk about some of the unfinished business there, too, I hope. But that wasn't really on the – that wasn't the, the, the top of the agenda for the decision makers who, who, who ultimately chose to, to uh, bring women to Princeton, was it? No. What was going on – and Princeton and Yale are the leaders in this phenomenon. Everybody else is watching them, taking cues uh, from them. And what was going on for Princeton and Yale was not a uh, sense of moral mission to educate women. It was not a, uh, an altruistic sense that opportunities ought to be opened to women. Rather, it was a matter of strategic self-interest. By the late 1960s, uh, applications to places like Princeton and Yale had begun uh, to fall off. Um, a good number of the students they liked to call the best boys uh, were indicating that they wanted to go to school with girls. And so uh, this is the moment when Harvard, which has Radcliffe up the street, begins to pull away from Princeton and Yale in admissions. Up until that point, they'd pretty much been going head uh, to head. Um, the uh, headmaster of the Westminster schools in Atlanta writes a letter to Bob Goheen in 19, spring of 1967. And, and Bob Goheen was uh, president. Uh, president of Princeton, sure. Um, and he says to President Goheen, um, 
we've seen something happen here at Westminster, and I'm sure it's happening at schools around the country. And that is that uh, since this school was founded, we've each year sent two or three or four of our best students to Princeton. And this year, while they were admitted, nobody is going to Princeton. And the reason is they want to go to co-ed schools. And he said, you need to pay attention to this. And President Goheen took that letter to the Board of Trustees in June of 1967 and read it to the board and said, we have got to reckon with this phenomenon. So the, the notion of admitting women uh, was part and parcel of an effort to restore the hold of these colleges and universities on, quote, these best boys. So women were going to play the strategic role of improving the educational experience of men and um, uh, reinstituting uh, the preeminence of places like Princeton and Yale um, uh, as places where the best high school boys should want to go to college. So it's pure strategy. Bring the women in and we'll get the best boys. So that that's uh, quite amazing, actually. And it is. I'm curious if, it, if, if you witnessed it or, or did your research uh, reveal that it had some impact on how women were integrated and then the experience of women when they came, both in the early years and, you know, as we plotted through the next few decades. Well, if, if these schools had set out to think carefully about the best ways to educate women because they believed strongly that they had a moral responsibility to bring women to benefit from the education offered, um, they might have planned it more carefully. But that wasn't what they were doing. So, of course, there was an impact on uh, the experience of the earliest women because uh, these institutions were not prepared for them, didn't know what to do with them, um, and uh, so essentially muddled through um, as best they could. I think Princeton muddled through a lot better than Yale did for uh, a variety uh, of reasons. But sure, the fact that women were brought here um, to uh, enhance the educational experience of men meant that people were not thinking very clearly about what you needed to do to enhance the educational experience of women. Yeah. No, very interesting. And I think um, a lot of women from the time also talked about a, a kind of social isolation since there were so few women um, in the very first year or yeah, two. They described. Absolutely. Um, and it got better very quickly. You know, by year two, by year three, uh, women students are commenting, there's so many more women around. And you see them when you walk across the campus, and you're not the only woman in your precept or in your uh, lecture hall. It made a very big difference uh, as the numbers began to grow. Well, your experience, I'm going to go back to your professional experience. As you say, you, 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 you took the opportunity to really get to know the university, and you you rose rather quickly to dean of the college, a, a, a job you held for I'm Tw not, 24 years. 24 years, the longest serving dean of the college in the history of Princeton. Um, and in that role, you really helped open doors for other underrepresented groups. And I'm curious whether there was in the back of your mind your own experience as a, as a vanguard member of, of, of women in Princeton, uh, both in the 
desire to open those doors, but also in the way you unfolded some of those um, uh, opportunities? Well, it was very clear um, from um, President Goheen and President Bowen that what this place needed to do um, was to become broader, and more inclusive, or reach out beyond the traditional populations uh, that Princeton had drawn on for so well for centuries. Um, and so President Goheen began uh, the recruitment of African American uh, students. President Bowen continued that, uh, began uh, active recruitment of uh, lower income students, then uh, Latino uh, students. Uh, uh, Asian American uh, students, the notion that uh, this place had to encompass more appropriately the full uh, population, the full pool of talent in the United States was very much uh, alive in the 19, uh, late 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. So when I became dean, uh, I was essentially building on a phenomenon that had already uh, been well uh, launched. And what we tried uh, to do um, uh, was to redouble efforts to um, make um, the outreach more and more uh, successful and uh, to increase the representation of underrepresented populations uh, to make Princeton a place where uh, students who had no family background of higher education could uh, thrive to make Princeton a place where um, uh, students from um, seriously disadvantaged backgrounds could find uh, support and uh, encouragement. And we did that in part uh, by much more active recruiting and outreach. Uh, we did it uh, in part uh, by establishing uh, programs, especially summer pre-freshmen, summer programs to help students who, for whom Princeton was just a bigger step than other students, to help them um, adjust to the university and hit the ground uh, running. Um, and um, we were so lucky that Princeton had the resources uh, to support financial aid uh, for students regardless of their uh, socioeconomic uh, circumstances. And then incredibly lucky that because uh, the endowment was doing so well in the late 1990s that uh, President Shapiro could say, and Provost Ostreicher could say to me as dean, suppose you had another million dollars for financial aid. What would you want to do? Um, and I said immediately, eliminate loans as part of the uh, financial aid uh, package so that we can provide more scholarship assistance for students. And we said we would really like more uh, aid available for international students. It used to be that we had a restricted budget for aid for international uh, students. And we were able, because of the wonderful uh, success of Princeton alumni in raising money for financial aid because of the commitment of the trustees, uh, we were able to invest uh, much more money in aid for international students. So now we're need blind for international students, being able at every stage um, 
with the backing of the institution to say, this is a place that looks for talent, um, looks for talent across the United States, around the world, and talent comes from unexpected places, from unexpected people, from schools that we're not really familiar with, and we are going to find that talent and bring those students here to Princeton because we know that they will take good advantage of a Princeton education and make make such a difference in the world. So that was a full institutional uh, imperative and continues uh, to be. That was a, a fascinating part of, of your book also was the importance of, of leadership, institutional leadership in this whole process. And it reminds me um, you know, of another great point you made or another moment in history that you, you captured, and that is um, Shirley Tillman's um, presidency. And uh, the job isn't entirely done, is it, I think, of bringing women to the forefront? Shirley, certainly, certainly not. Could you talk to us about the, the report on leadership that Shirley um, started and, and what your thoughts on that might be? When Shirley Tillman became uh, president, um, she, if you will, built on uh, a foundation that really started with Harold Shapiro. Uh, Harold Shapiro uh, valued um, women um, academic leaders, non-academic leaders, and made a point of uh, encouraging them and giving them uh, opportunities. Um, Shirley then, uh, if you will, doubled down on that and made a number of important appointments of uh, women to senior leadership uh, positions in the presidents, uh, cabinet, deanships, uh, vice presidencies. Um, so that it came to be the case that about half the president's cabinet consisted of women. That didn't sit all that well with some uh, alumni. I remember meeting uh, an alumnus in the class of 1940, President Goheen's class, um, who was complaining about what he called the damned matriarchy at the university. And <laughs> I told him, well, frankly, I'm proud to be part of that uh, matriarchy. The curious, now, um, there are pieces missing, however. One piece, um, uh, women graduate students. We still don't have uh, an appropriate balance, male-female balance, in the graduate student population. Women faculty, we've made great strides um, in hiring and tenuring uh, women faculty, but we've still got a real distance to go uh, till women are well represented across the disciplines um, in the faculty ranks at Princeton. Now, undergraduates are a really interesting case because we're now 50-50 in terms of the undergraduate population. Um, and you would assume, therefore, uh, that undergraduate women are fully represented in leadership positions at the university. What we were seeing in the first decade of this century was that that was not the case, that women were uh, not running for president of the USG, were not running for class president, were not showing up as uh, editor of the editors of the Daily Princetonian. Um, if you will, the uh, uh, real uh, uh, sort of flashpoint for us was um, Freshman Parents uh, Day. This was about 
maybe fall 2008, maybe um, 2009, um, the Daily Princetonian on Friday showed the pictures of the students running for president of the freshman class, and all seven of them were young men. And so at the parents' assembly on Saturday morning, the parents asked Shirley Tillman and me, what was going on, for goodness sakes? Were we a co-ed institution or weren't we? Where were the young women? What uh, Shirley decided to do was to ask uh, Nan Cohan, the former president of Duke and Wellesley, who had joined the faculty here in the Woodrow Wilson School, to lead um, a task force to try to figure out what was going on. Uh, in terms of undergraduate women's leadership. That was a group I participated in. And what we, I developed uh, data for that uh, task force with the help of uh, administrators in other offices. What I found that was most striking was that um, if you looked at the major, most public leadership positions, USG president, class presidents, editor of the prince, chair of the honor committee. If you looked at those positions starting in the 1970s, by decade, uh, the number of women in those positions in each decade increased exponentially so that if by the 1990s, the trajectory had continued into the 2000s, women would have held those leadership positions in the same proportion as their share of the undergraduate student body. But what happened in the 2000s was that the number of women in those positions was cut in half, almost cut in half. So what on earth was going on was the question we set out to try to understand. And it's not just those positions, it's presidents of eating clubs and, and many others. And honestly, we never fully understood. Um, women told us that um, they were running arts organizations and religious organizations and community service organizations and these high profile positions uh, really didn't amount to much. Well, uh, both of those needed uh, to be ar arenas in which women were exercising leadership. They told us that um, they were playing critically important roles behind the scenes, making things happen. And it didn't matter who held the title. What does matter? Who holds uh, the title? So we, um, I think, uh, by uh, publicizing the challenge, made a difference in women being willing to put themselves forward. We created some mentoring programs uh, for uh, women students, with older students, with faculty. Um, and I think things have changed in, um, in notable ways. But it wasn't just a Princeton phenomenon. We found that kind of drop off uh, at some of our peer institutions, which we found stunning um, in bad ways. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so that may be something we should explore in future episodes. Nancy, thanks for being with us today. Thanks to our audio engineer, Daniel Kearns, and our producer, Danielle Alio. You've been listening to She Roars. I'm Margaret Koval, and we'll be back again soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women of Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. 
The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.